most of the phone calls that we get in Pittsburgh are, hey, I want to live in the city and I can't afford the $800,000 condos that are going in right near where I live. Yeah. I don't want to move out to Cranberry. So a lot of the calls that we get, people are just looking for a right-sized, well-designed, sustainable product. You're listening to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. Brian, thanks for coming on the podcast, man. Yeah, I'm excited. These are busy days for uh, Module, it seems like. We are busy. Yeah. Um, Let's start off explaining the concept, the promise, the vision for what you're doing here at Module. Uh, You have the background uh, in architecture, background in all sorts of different kind of studies and understanding of urban spaces, of housing. And the first time I heard about Module, it was somewhat intuitive, somewhat kind of like commonsensical, like, of course, we, sh- we should be trying to do that. Um, but how do, you, how do you explain module to folks who might be coming across it for the first time? So how I explain our company, we're essentially addressing attainable housing in the US. So how do we make a well-designed, right-sized, energy-efficient home accessible to people like you and me, so to the average customer? Yeah. Um, I'm trained as an architect, and typically people think of design as something that's expensive and that it's a luxury. So yeah. our one of the questions that we ask is, how do we make design attainable to people who could not afford to hire an architect to build their home? Um, so we think about, you know, the housing, like the demographics of our country have shifted a lot over the past 70 years, but the way we build homes has not. So there's a something called Levittown. It was the first suburban subdivision in the United States. It was Levittown, New York. So after World War II, basically a lot of soldiers were coming back from abroad. And there was this thing called the GI Bill, which made it really affordable and accessible to buy a house. So a lot of new people needed to buy houses and we didn't have space to do it. So there was something called the suburb that was created. So it was in between the city and the rural area. And it was this new concept. So homes, you know, you think of places like Cranberry, a typical suburb, this concept was created, you know, in the mid 1900s. And essentially that was an innovation in housing. 70 years later, we're still building the same kind of stuff that we did after World War II. What's changed is the demographics in our country. So no longer is it like the leave it to beaver family, mom, dad, three kids, two dogs, three cars. And that's what I want is my white picket fence version of the American dream. Now we have a lot of millennials who are single. They might have a dog. They're forming households and they're saying, I don't know if I feel served by a six bedroom house that's 3000 square feet. My version of the American dream is a little bit different. So you have millennials who are entering the age of home ownership. They're burdened with student loan debt. They're getting married later, fewer kids. And then we have another part of the demographic, which is basically folks like my parents, baby boomers. And they're living in too much space because their kids went off to college and they moved out. And they're saying, you know what? I have too much house. Um, Where can I go? I don't want the maintenance. I don't want all of this extra stuff. What kind of space do I need? So I think these are, this is kind of the problem that I see that the housing market has today is we're building the same way we are building, but the people who need housing, their needs have changed. 
And we want to we wanna serve that with a 21st century product built using 21st century construction technology and really designed for today's buyer. So I, there's so many avenues that we can hopefully try to get down all of them in our limited time together. But even what you just illustrated there with um, this kind of, you could argue, outdated or older model for the home for a piece of uh, residential real estate. And there's an article that I, I just drew, uh, pulled up here because I, I remembered reading it. Um, it. It's titled, OK Boomer, Who's Going to Buy Your 21 Million Homes? And this silver tsunami of folks that are moving out of that house that served them through that kind of middle period of their lives. And if there isn't necessarily that next uh, cohort of buyers, the potential for a entire generation that maybe kind of th- even thought about their homes as this investment, as this part of their uh, portfolio of assets that might not be as valuable as it was expected to be when it was initially purchased. So it sounds like that's one of the kind of macro trends that you're spending a lot of time thinking about. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. So can you talk from from a design standpoint, I, I, I love that positioning of design isn't just a luxury thing, but design is basically something that should be applied to all sorts of elements of lives. My understanding is that design is really rooted in empathy and understanding for the consumer or the buyer or the user, their preferences, and thinking about that really thoughtfully. So can you maybe speak to outside of just general space, general size, other elements of the design of residential uh, properties, residential homes that is uh, something of a relic of the past or, or, or is in, in need of updating? Yeah. So one... You know, one aspect of design that we think about, because you asked, you, I think you're spot on and you talk about design, there's a lot of empathy in design and how do we think about the people who are going to be using this particular space and what do they need, what do they want? Yeah. What I found is there's a disconnect with what the average builder wants to build versus what the consumer actually needs. So yeah. what we're finding is that a builder looks at a piece of property, let's say, like let's take a piece of land in East Liberty and says, how can I maximize this property for the most profit that I can make? How many, how big of a house can I build here? How much can I sell it for? And they may not be thinking about the actual person that's going to be living in that home. They might just be thinking about the bottom line pro forma for that particular project. That's really what they're designing and thinking about. They're not okay. thinking about the end customer. So we're saying on that same piece of property, sure, you want to be profitable on a project. But also that land is about the people that are going to live there and it's about the neighborhood in which that land sits. So what is the product that folks that are looking to live in that area want? And what about the neighborhood as well? Because, you know, there's a challenge uh, in real estate development about, you know, pricing out people, right? How do we just, as a city, how do we grow and develop responsibly when I think about real estate? So as I think about design, one step is, okay, you can design something to be kind of the most profitable, let's say, for a particular site. But that may not be the same thing for the person who actually is calling you up on the phone and says, hey, I want to live in this particular area. So I think there's a disconnect there and we want to solve that disconnect. Other things as I think about design are usability of a particular space. So we finished our first home for a customer earlier this year uh, in Friendship. So that house is designed uh, Annabelle and Jason, our first client, they bought a vacant piece of land behind their house and they built a one bedroom, one bathroom home for their parents. So their parents are getting up in age and this is basically like a granny flat, you call it, like a, a house for your in-laws. Mm-hmm. 
And that was designed specifically, um, one of their parents has some challenges with aging. So we thought about this space um, to design it in a way that someone who lives there who might be in their 70s can age uh, with dignity. And so like you think about a you know, some of your other options might be putting someone in an assisted living facility and you look as you, if you've ever, you know, I don't know if you have relatives who are older and and you walk through those spaces and you see all these grab bars and handrails and it just feels very sterile. Our question was, how can we design a dignified space for this, for their older relatives to live in that could also be accessible to them? So for instance, the bathroom in our, in that first house has a zero step entry into the shower. So if this, if any of their parents eventually have a walker or wheelchair, they could walk directly into the shower without, you know, having to get over a tub, things like that. Uh, We think about design for that particular user. Um, The kitchen is laid out, the the distance between the island and the cabinets is wider than you would in a normal house. And that's, again, to uh, to sort of accommodate someone with a walker or a wheelchair. And even the cabinet pools, how we've positioned those and designed those so it can be easy for someone who may not have the strength of you know, uh, t- someone in their 20s to be opening and using that space. So really thought about their parents as the primary user for that particular house. And that was something, um, as I think about how we designed that house in particular and what it's, who its user was. Another part of my understanding of, of your business, though, is that part of the hope, part of the aspiration is that in having some thoughtfully designed frameworks for these homes, there's there's an element of personalization, but there's also an element of scalability in that if you can prefabricate homes um, in one kind of manufacturing production facility, your capacity to create these thoughtfully designed spaces at scale at a fair, affordable price to that average consumer becomes possible. So can you talk a little bit about the role that that prefabrication in a specific location will play in uh, uh, times to actually get the thing built and other kind of uh, energy and and resource uh, considerations. Mm -hmm. So we've used, so our company is called Module. And part of that was because our units are designed such with flexibility in mind. So the idea that could you add another story, you might only need a thousand square feet, two bedrooms today, but what if your family grows or what if a grandparent needs to move in? So can we design our spaces so that they can expand over time and they can be adapted over time? That's one way we use that term module. Um, But the other way is how we build the homes and we're building them. Part of that house is being built in a factory. So we call it offsite construction. So for instance, on, a, on an average house, we have a local contractor who, when we start with a piece of vacant land, they're digging up that land, they're putting in the foundation, whether it's concrete blocks or concrete panels, they're putting that in on site. But at the same time, in a factory, so in our, on our next project, 90 minutes north of Pittsburgh is where our factory is located. The actual houses, the wood, you know, the wood frame, the two by six framing, windows, doors, drywall, electrical, the actual homes are being built in the factory. Um, and why we're, why we believe that prefab is the future, couple reasons, excuse me, a couple reasons, essentially the labor shortage in our country is really steep. So after the mortgage crisis of 2008, a lot of contractors left the industry and said, I'm done, I'm out. You know, they were older yeah. and they said, I don't want, I don't, this is, this is too much for me. So there's not enough labor to go around. 
And so because when there's not enough labor, every contractor around is going to be pricing their jobs higher and higher. So part of offsite and part of prefabrication is, hey, there's a 90 minutes north of Pittsburgh, there's a factory with dedicated workers who are being paid a salary and they're working under a roof, right? The average contractor right now in Pittsburgh is working in terrible elements. They're working in a controlled environment. They're doing a specific trade on, the, on a factory line and it's a better working environment. So that's one reason why we think prefab makes a lot of sense. Um, the other is quality control, right? So as we think about every house being built, if you were thinking about building the same houses that we're doing right now outside in the elements, snow, rain, those weather delays are a huge burden on the cost and the time that it takes to build a house. Yeah. So we can be doing all that in a controlled environment, installing the windows and the doors and the building wrap in, in, in without it raining and pouring on you is a huge quality control plus. Um, and then the last piece, I think the benefit of offsite is you know mass industrialization, right? So the idea that cars became cheaper once they moved into factory line production, the same general concept is at scale, using industrialized processes, we can make the process of building that same house cheaper because we're building a hundred of them or a thousand of them. Right now, like in the, where the prefab industry sits today in the US, it's faster, it's better, it's not yet cheaper at scale is what we've found as we work with third-party manufacturers. Now, if you go to Japan or other parts of Europe, it's pretty amazing how most of their housing in some countries are built in a factory and they do it really, really well. The U.S. is really lagging behind in that sense. Is part of the reason that you were capable of seeing that opportunity, the fact that you spent... So, like, I was part of the research of you, the individual, leading, in, leading into the actual founding of Modular Company is you're traveling not all, all over the country, all over the world, studying these different urban environments. Is part of the reason that you're able to see that opportunity because of that experience? Seems obvious. Yeah, I think in the U.S. we know that the way we build housing is broken. Um, you hear that all the time. If you talk to a contractor, they'll talk about the challenges with labor. They'll talk about the cost of building going up. I mean, even in Pittsburgh, you see the, the cost of housing rising in a lot of neighborhoods. Yeah. And it's this snowball but, effect. But as, a, as, a, as someone who is not particularly a savvy consumer, I associate a lot of that with well, that's like a hot neighborhood and it's the land that is the primary driver of those costs. And I, I know that that's still a part of it, but I, honestly, I don't even give consideration to the fact that it's actually a contractor or a labor or a, a capacity issue. That's not something that necessarily comes across my calculation. Yeah. You know, in Pittsburgh, that challenge isn't as big, but in the West Coast, it's, in, it's, it's immense. Yeah. So the value of land is higher. And then by proxy, the value of labor is way, way higher in the West Coast. It's insane. You build the same house in Pittsburgh, you build that in San Francisco, the costs are going to be completely different for both the land and the labor. So it's really market specific. Um, but I guess to answer your question about you know, other parts of the world, I you know, was trained as an architect and was very interested in exploring the problem of the housing crisis. Um, out of school. So I'd worked at a nonprofit architecture firm, did some disaster recovery work in Mississippi, but was really trying to answer the question, um, or was asking the question, you know, how can design be more attainable and more accessible? And so really wanted to broaden my view of what was out there. And so traveled 
in South America quite a bit. So a friend and I worked on a documentary. We directed a documentary about the housing crisis and about unique innovative solutions that were coming out of cities in South America. So going there, we saw some pretty fascinating concepts that were being executed on because the regulatory environment in a place like South America is much less rigorous than the U.S., right? So a lot more experimentation happening. A lot happening. more experimentation happening. Yeah. yeah. As I, I was watched the, the trailer for it, Lima, Santiago, Rio, Bogota, uh, Sao Paulo, it, and that was what helped crystallize that it seems the mission for Module is this kind of accessible, affordable housing, scalable, influencing a large portion of people as opposed to something that's more of a luxury good. Yeah, I, I, I think the ethos of that film was how do we find some of the most innovative architects and designers that are working in the most difficult situations, right? And it's easy to design a house for someone or build a house for them when their budget is whatever they, you know, like, I don't have a budget. Yeah. Just go design whatever I want in my imagination. That's an easy design problem. The hardest design problem is I have this amount of money and this is the space that I need. How can we go about this? Those are more of the fun and interesting challenges and problems. Yeah. Um, I think what we've learned over the past almost four years of building this business is like affordable housing is a really complex problem. And just because you're building with prefab and you're building smaller doesn't mean you're able to solve the affordable housing crisis. So I think when we started this company, we're like, hey, let's build a company. Let's solve the affordable housing crisis in the United States. And like, wow, that's hard. Yeah. Um, and it takes innovation around zoning and land use. It takes innovation in how people finance the construction of their homes. It takes innovation in the physical construction components, which we do. But it's a really complex problem that we can be part of the solution for, but it may not be the bread and butter that we build our business on, yeah. um, if that makes sense. Can you peel a little, uh, a little bit back for us as it pertains to the uh, financial instruments associated with home ownership and property ownership? Because um, the the prefabricated house built like you you've done a wonderful job of articulating how that can be um, more labor efficient, more resource efficient. Um, but can you talk a little bit about that element of the picture? Because affordable housing uh, issues are are substantial, but that's uh, another important element. Yeah. So as I think about like financing a home, right? If you're a person in Pittsburgh and you're thinking about okay, I want to go buy a house. There's a lot of steps, right? You can, everyone go on Zillow and look and check and, you know, um, start looking at pictures and neighborhoods they want to live in. But from the point of, I'm interested in buying a house to going online and getting a mortgage calculator and saying, okay, this might make sense. There's a huge number of steps before you can actually go and purchase a house. So getting, you know, pre-approved for a certain amount for a mortgage, right? So you may have a certain amount of savings saved up and that's what you have as a potential down payment, a certain percentage of your savings. Um, so there's a bunch of factors that influence how much house you can afford, right? It is savings. It is the income that you're generating right now. It's the number of people in your household. Um, it's your credit history. So there's a lot of factors that the bank uses to calibrate what, how much house you can afford versus how much house I can afford. And what we find is a lot of people, um, especially who are younger, don't may not have the credit history, right? Like people, like a lot of millennials don't even have credit cards, right? And so how does a bank qualify certain types of people is becoming more challenging. There's a huge industry 
that's spinning up in the fintech industry that's all about financing homes in different ways um, because they realize that the way banks finance it, which is like a 30-year mortgage, so you know, here's the price of your house and you're going to pay us a mortgage payment until you basically purchase that house officially from us. I think that's a dated way to go about purchasing a house. And there's so many companies out there now that are creating new ways to finance homes for consumers. For instance, there's a group called uh, Divi Homes where you and I can buy a house together and co-buy a house um, so we can pool our resources and purchase um, that house together. There's companies that if you don't have the money saved, like if I want to go buy a house, I don't have the money saved up, a third party will buy that house and I can rent it from them over a period of time and then eventually earn equity in the house and purchase it. I mean, there's so many financial models out there now because they realize that um, it's really challenging and opaque to buy a house that kind of the way we we do it right now. So there's so many product offerings out there. Yeah. It's fascinating to think about that ecosystem because it's one that I'm uh, wonderfully uninformed about, which is why it's nice to talk to someone like you. But uh, from from my vantage point in in media, I think a lot about the relationship between the media that's consumed and the consumer goods that are purchased. And so you could argue in the same way that like these different pieces are are interlocking and, and one thing being dated and another thing being dated, they both kind of break under uh, uh, modern environment. In media and consumer goods, you see the all these direct to consumer brands popping up. Warby Parker, uh, Glossier, all these other folks that are, you know, digitally native, used to digital media, and maybe, you know, we'll put a commercial out there, but that's really where they start. And they're disrupting these legacy consumer packaged goods that were built for a mass audience. Yeah. So therefore, they bought a TV commercial. And as TV is uh, waning, you also see these kind of mass consumer goods waning. And you know, th- these new upstart brands get to sprout up from that. Yeah. But it's, it seems like this is just another quintessential example of that. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely agree that I think that's a great analogy with the consumer products. I think one challenge as it relates to housing is it's such a costly, per- it's the, like buying a house is the most expensive purchase of someone's life yeah. most of the time. And, and people aren't savvy to it too. It's like, I, I can buy a razor this month. Yeah. And if I decide like, this isn't the razor for me, <laughs> yeah. it's not a big deal for me to buy a different razor next right. month. But if I make a mistake in a housing purchase, there could be decades worth of ramifications yeah. to that. Exactly. Um, there's some other alternative housing solutions that are coming about. Um, you know, co-living is this new concept that I think kind of like building off the co-working, you know, we're sitting in a co-working space right now, but co-living is this, it's basically modified. I'm an adult, but I live with roommates. Yeah. (laughs) That's what it is. It's a branded version. A rebranded version. (laughs) Rebranded living with roommates as an adult. Yeah. But it's, there are companies, there are probably five startups that are working on this and they're building shared suite style living, new construction product, suite style living, where you, myself, and someone else each has our own private bedroom. And then we're sharing a kitchen and we're sharing a bathroom space. And it's basically like, oh, that's dorms for adults. Yeah. But the reason why all these brands and these new concepts are coming up is because consumers don't feel that they're being served by the legacy solutions, which is here's your options, live in an apartment in the city or buy a new construction home in the suburbs. 
those were like the two primary options and people are like, I don't fit in that box. Yeah. So I think that's why you see a lot of companies like ours trying to create new solutions to housing. Yes. So another piece of news relative to module um, was a, a relatively recent deal that was announced, uh, the Urban Development Action Grant for the construction of uh, four-unit exploration of this concept. Can you just elaborate a little bit more on, on what that actually entails um, and how this is kind of a step forward? You talked about the first client, but this is you know continuing the iterative steps of proving this uh, concept out for module. Yeah. So as a startup company, you're always trying to figure out how do you go from zero to one customers and then one to 10 customers, right? Yep. So you've successfully survived going zero to one and we're able to do that um, with a, you know, a very forward thinking uh, client on our first project. So we're super excited and thankful about to get that house delivered, do it in a really quick time frame, and it's really beautiful. It's won several awards from the American Institute of Architects locally and then from the Department of Energy for our energy efficient was. So, okay. We successfully went from zero to one. Now, how do we get from one to 10? That's the phase that we're in right now. And one of the kind of questions we were asking ourselves is how do we get more customers? How do we get more customers? We get so many people come to our website. They fill out a form on our website. They say, I want the two-bedroom haven and I don't own land or I own land. What we found is majority of our customers wanted, they knew kind of the type of house they wanted, but they didn't own land yet. And for us to help them go buy land Build a, get the zoning approvals and the permits and build a house, that could take a much longer period of time. So we said, we have to be proactive about this. And given the data that we've collected about the Pittsburgh market, we kind of know what consumers want. We have to be proactively going out and buying land ourselves and developing housing. So that's what we're doing on this four-unit project is essentially acting as the real estate developer. So we found land in Garfield in a market we think there's a lot of um, appreciation and upside to be in. Yeah, And we purchased land from the local neighborhood group and from the Urban Redevelopment Authority. So the URA in Pittsburgh, which is a huge, they own thousands of properties throughout the city. So we went to them as the developer and said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to build four total units. One will be a duplex. So it'll be an up-down duplex where you can live above and then rent the ground floor out to someone else. And that'll actually serve as module show home and sales office in the city of Pittsburgh. So we'll hold that property. And then we're building, a, next to it, we're building a market rate home. This will be a home sold to a buyer for a market rate price. Yeah. And then the third home will be sold to a buyer in need of affordable housing. So for that, for that particular house, we lined up a nonprofit development partner from the neighborhood, and we got some grant subsidy to basically subsidize the cost of our home so that someone who needs affordable housing in the neighborhood can afford to purchase that house. Um, so that process of basically going from serving a client to us being as developer is a really, it's a learning process for us, but we're doing it because to get to scale and to go to market, we need to get more product out there. And the fastest way to do that is um, to be sort of uh, speculative, right? About, we know what the data is from our customers. We know where they want to live. Let's go see if we can actually get the, get it right and, and serve the market in Pittsburgh. So another element of that scaling story, though, is access to capital, particularly in something that can be, as you alluded to, it's a very big purchase. It yeah. is, uh, you know, a, a sample batch of, back to the razors analogy of 100 razors, is a completely, you know, order of magnitude less price point right. than an initial batch of these products. So is another part of how, when you think about like the stair steps of this company, this being a gateway to, well, we were able to sell it, 
we were able to build it at this price point. We learned uh, and validated to some degree this model. And that then can be the impetus for a conversation with uh, not just real estate investors, but tech and startup investors as well that, that would potentially be a part of that next step for module. Yeah, I think it's critical. Like if you think about, let's say we were starting a razor company. Okay, what's the cost of prototyping a razor, right? Okay, let's, you might start 3D printing it, then maybe you get some molds and, or perhaps you're just buying like razors and you're, if you're, if you went through Alpha Lab gear, you're probably just buying razors like from the Dollar General, cutting them up and like you know, taping them together, right? Yeah. So like the cost of prototyping that versus a house is insanely different. Yeah. So I think what we've learned is a company who is a startup company, um, but the cost of getting off the ground is a lot higher. We're a lot more capital intensive than most companies out there. Yeah. And so what we were able to do on this project is instead of go, like that's about a million dollar project. So instead of going out to a VC and saying, hey, give me a million bucks, I'm going to go build four houses and we're going to sell them. And oh, for a million bucks, you can take 20% of my company. We said, what if we went out and sort of found bank financing and real estate investor financing to finance that project separate from our company. So that's what we tested on this first uh, development. And I think that's a way we can get project-specific capital in addition to the startup capital we need. So we can be relatively lean on the startup capital that we require and then go out and get project financing for each deal, essentially, we put together. And you could argue that that's maybe the benefit and the challenge of this where it is capital-intensive but it is also a market where there are a lot of people that have invested in real estate. There are a lot of firms that you wouldn't even qualify as some sort of traditional venture investor that has a comfort and a sophistication and, an, and a competence in knowing how to think about the returns and the fees and all the other instruments associated with that type of investment as well. Yeah, definitely. And I think at the beginning, we were we sort of, we looked at that type of capital. And we said, oh, that's not, you know, I think every company that goes through an incubator is is like, oh, our path is we're going to go finish this incubator, go raise a million bucks of a seed round, and then go raise, you know, a $5 million A and go do that, right? That's kind of like the mentality of most companies that go through incubators. But yeah. The reality is that's not the one way to build a, a business. Um, so I think we finally learned, you know what? There's other types of capital in addition to like startup and venture capital that we can use to build our business. We don't have to be trying to fit all of our development cycle into the venture box, I guess. So that's something we've learned and uh, we hope to continue doing and repeating. That's one of the fascinating things though about startups or I guess just entrepreneurship in general though is you have this background in architecture and doing things in, the, in kind of the vein of urban studies. And you then also have to go basically educate yourself on financial services and financial products in order to kind of make these, in addition to what all the other decisions that you've had to make along the way. Yeah. Yeah. It's a huge learning curve, I yeah. think, for any first-time entrepreneur, right? It's a huge learning curve. A lot of people don't come from a finance background. Um, so I think it's important, you know, in architecture school, we learned how to present, right? We had to put drawings up on the wall. Yeah. And and express an idea and say, this is what we're looking to build and get feedback on that concept. You had to be, I wouldn't call it selling, but you'd be explaining your concepts. Like you'd have, here's the floor plans, here's the elevations, but then you'd have your 3D model. And there's a model that was 
So you have the 3D model of exactly what the building looks like, and then you have the this other model, which they call the Parti model, which is very conceptual. It's very, if there's like a million different lines on a building, this would be like three, three pieces to this model. So it's very simple and kind of um, almost plain. And a good Parti, if you can get people to understand the very core concept of your building, then yeah. they're probably going to understand the details of it. Is, I mean, I mean that's a beautiful metaphor for sales, though. And, and even as you were saying, like, well, it wasn't sales, but. Uh, one of my favorite books I've cited in past episodes is To Sell as Human by Daniel Pink, which is that even if you aren't in a, a nominal sales role, you're selling within your organization to get buy-in for your program. You're selling a potential employee as a part of recruitment. Like There's, there's always selling going on, and those right. communication presentation skills are pretty universal. Yeah, yeah. So I think that was valuable, like being in sort of having a design background and then moving into entrepreneurship. But there was a ton that was, we had to learn on the fly, right? Myself and my co-founders. Yeah. So what are, what are we looking at here on the walls? Like tell me a, a little bit about, these look like floor plans associated with a couple of the different designs and models of these module homes. Yeah. So what this is, is product development. So we've got, so on our website, we have four base models, right? Yep. So a one, two bedroom, three bedroom, then a duplex. But the reality is, What's different, you know, about a house as a product versus a razor, right? A razor, you pick it up and anyone's, you kind of have to design the handle, I guess, so that the average person's hand size can use it fairly comfortably, right? There might be some people who have, you know, larger hands and there might be uncomfortable people with smaller hands. But like for the most part, it doesn't, it's not tied to the ground. It's a product that anyone can pick up. With a house, what's different about that as a product is it's tied to physical ground in a physical location, which influences the value of it. It influences the climate, that particular climate. And if it's where it's oriented, north, south, east, west, all of that influences the actual product that you're delivering. So while we have these base units on our website, once you stick it onto a particular piece of ground, things change. And so this is us kind of experimenting with new types of designs um, for other types of lots throughout the city of Pittsburgh and other places. So like this, oops. Um, so this house here is actually an accessory dwelling unit. So this is like an in-law, another in-law suite concept. Um, what we found, this would be for a more rural site. So, you know, in Pittsburgh, we're constrained by space, right? All these lots are skinny like row houses, but this site is actually a space that has just a vast amount of land. So how can we still kind of be the ethos of module with is live within your means, but it's a bit more spacious and it kind of sprawls out across the site. Yeah. Uh, it's also, is, also a decision of like how many yards are we keeping yeah, mo- yeah. mother-in-law away? <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so we're just basically trying to iterate on new types of product, um, you know, duplex E right there. So to your point about cost and scalability of this, right? If you build one house, standalone detached single family house the cost of that versus that same design but three of them attached yeah it's going to be cheaper to build three of them attached than it is one house on a single lot so we're starting to experiment with if we bring in density and put more units together how does that affect our costs and our price point and things like that very cool um well We've already run through a half-hour conversation, so I've learned a great deal from you during this period of time. But uh, before we kind of aim towards uh, uh, talking about the last two questions, 
Uh, anything else you're hoping to share today, whether it be about module or just about um, you know the the changes in real estate in general that you could educate some of us noobs on? Um, I would say for folks who are Pittsburgh based or Western PA based, um, we love feedback. We love that. You know, Drew, my co-founder, is a product designer, so he's all about customer research. Yeah, and we have a customer advisory board. So we love testing these designs with people in person getting their feedback on what they like. So we're not like the architect, the genius architect sitting in their, you know, in their room like, oh, this is the Frank Lloyd Wright. We're like, what do people like you and me think about what types of housing we need here in Pittsburgh? So yeah. we have this customer advisory board. They can't board. all be falling water. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They can't. Not every house is going to be falling water. So for people who are like house junkies or love just looking at stuff on, there's some people out there who just love doing that. Talk to us, come join our customer advisory board and just give us your feedback. So that's one thing. What's some say. of the feedback been on the concept, the concept of the modular home that grows with you? Yeah. The, the promise of that is exciting. But even as I was thinking about it, one of the things that I was curious about is like, how much is the life but, you know, it can't be as bad as like picking everything up and just moving to a bigger house, but it still has to be disruptive to some degree right. um, in the way that, you know, I've known people that got like an addition built on their home or something to that effect. Yeah. So what's interesting is the initial concept of a house that grows with you is a really exciting intellectual concept. Most of the phone calls that we get in Pittsburgh are, hey, I want to live in the city and I can't afford the $800,000 condos that are going in right near where I live. Yeah. But I don't want to move out to Cranberry. So a lot of the calls that we get, people are just looking for a right-sized, well-designed, sustainable product in the city. But we do get a lot of inquiries about, I mean, the, the idea of a house that can grow with you is fascinating. And we're actually going to be testing it on our next project. So we're designing one of those units and we're actually going to be self-performing the addition. So we're going to put two stories in to start, put the roof on, take it off, add a story and put it back on. Yeah. So we're going to test that because the question is what value does that actually provide to the consumer? Right. right? How the, I mean, the stress of moving is obviously immense. Um, the stress of a renovation is immense because it takes so long. So there's kind of, there's actual physical money associated with that. And then there's the stress of doing that. So we're going to test the time it takes and the added cost of basically designing that so that we can physically perform that. So we're going to test that on this next project and I'll, I'll, sh I'll have to share that feedback with you after we do it. Yeah. I'm curious about it. Cause that, that was like super exciting at first. And I was like, how would that actually work? But I guess we're going to find out here in the next, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll have some videos about it. Um, but we think that we can add another story and put the roof back on all in a day. So if you imagine doing an addition under your house with the majority of the work being done in a day, yeah. you still have to go back and finish that some of that work. So we're really going to kind of water test how much value does that provide to a consumer? Yeah. Fascinating. Um, I want people to follow along, check out what you're doing, um, connect in the digital world so they can kind of keep tabs on these exciting developments. Uh, Brian, what digital coordinates can we provide people that want to do that? So uh, the best place to kind of find information about us in general is our website, modulehousing.com. M-O-D-U-L-E housing.com. And we have a great newsletter every month. We're sending out a new newsletter with some fun, interesting information. Um, we're on Instagram at module housing on Twitter at module housing. Um, 
So those are some of the best places to find us. Cool. We're going to link that all in the show notes, goingdeepwithaaron.com slash podcast or in the app where you're probably listening to this right now. Uh, it's the best place to find it. But before we let you go, Brian, uh, I want to give you the mic one more time to issue an actionable personal challenge for the audience. Uh, my personal challenge for the audience is the holidays are coming up and we're all running around and to take one day during the holidays to just not touch our work computers. That's what that would be my challenge. That may be more hard than you think. It might sound easy, but it's probably harder than yeah. you think. Or the work-associated apps on your sure, phone. If you, can, work if you can put the laptop away, but shut that off, shut your brain off for a second and be present. I dig yeah. it. Cool. Beautiful. Um, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, man. Yeah, this is great. We Enjoy. just went deep with Brian Gaudio. Hope everyone out there has a fantastic day.